0: Okay, why not? We'll get get it started with another good laugh at the missionaries' expense. Missionaries have lots of stories to tell. Really, some of them, the most hilarious are the guffaws that they've made while um, learning the language. And, of course, if you're a recent graduate from seminary, it doesn't matter the fact that you don't speak the language well. When you go to that culture and country, they typically say, oh, well, come on forward and bring us a message from God's Word, barely knowing who you are at all. So, again, at my expense, I'm going to Raleigh kind of implied or even asked that I would share this story. It's one of the funniest ones perhaps that you ever heard. There are many missionary stories about how they just say things they didn't think they were saying and then once they found out to their horror, wished they hadn't said. Uh, It was the first year that I was at the church there, the first church plant where I was involved in the heart of the city of Tijuana downtown and I was uh, preaching. My text that morning was, find it quickly here, the, from the uh, 19th psalm, the second half. And uh, as I was reading it, oh man, why do I do this, Raleigh? Uh, in Spanish, I was reading, "The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord, etc., etc., the fear of the Lord. And then the conclusion in verses 10 and 11, they are two. "They are more precious than gold than much fine, pure gold. They are sweeter than honey than honey from the honeycomb. Except that when I read it, instead of saying the word for honeycomb, which in, in Spanish is panal, P-A-N-A-L, pretty simple, right? I, perhaps because of that, at that stage in my life, I was surrounded by little ones in diapers, and my wife more than I, but I had grown very accustomed to the word for baby's diaper, which is P-A-N-A-L with that little squiggly line over the end known as a tilde. A little squiggling line can make a huge difference. That word is pañal, baby's diaper. So what did I say from the pulpit in the church and in public worship? I said, sweeter also than the honey. Yea, than the honey from the baby's diaper. <laughs> and a ruling elder in the back of the congregation who had also two little ones, both in diapers, lost control. And, and I, you know, what did I say? What did I do? And I didn't know, but I did, you just kind of, you know, turn red and keep on going. And after the service, he came up to me. I think, I hope you get to meet him someday. Those of you on Team Baja who've been in past, it, it, uh, Angel Petch. Chris, no, Christy's out teaching. Angel Petch is the man. He came up to me and he, and he said, Dave, Dave, I don't know what comes out of the diapers in your house, but in my home, it ain't honey. I said, "Angel, what I say." He said, "You said pañal, you meant to say panal, and I'm never going to let you forget it." Well, because I've told this story now, I suspect that there are more than one uh, folks uh, more than one there is one more than one who will not let me forget it. Oh well. Missionary stories. That's my favorite. That's your favorite. There I there. Well, I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> Yeah, right. Why couldn't they have made it easier on folks like myself? But I was going to tell another story because we were kind of poking fun, Alan and I, at Dave Thibault with his youthful zeal and enthusiasm asking for that hymn, ooh, ooh, ooh. And, and Alan said, okay, you know, I, I saw you can, you can sit still now. Uh, we've, we've selected your hymn. The hymn before that, uh, many, many of you have had the experience where a certain song, comes to your life and and your environment at a certain time in your life and it fits hand in glove and you never forget, I think teenage girls are especially prone to this. Uh, Should I poke fun at them? No, I won't. uh, They've seen the young man of their dreams and they hear a song which is now currently on the radio and they will never forget uh, the the association of the song. Okay, sorry, I'll leave you girls alone. Um, But something along those lines. Well, I remember the first time with my wife that we stumbled upon, we found uh, hymn number 271. And we sang it for the first time, that, uh, that wonderful and glorious introspection on why me, through the words of uh, God's gifted poet, Isaac Watts. But then, not, not just introspection, but then the and glory. Pity the nations, and then send thy victorious word abroad. Uh, to bring the stranger in that with one voice and heart and, and soul that we would all sing thy redeeming grace. And, and I kind of looked at Jane and she looked at me and boy, this is the most beautiful hymn we've ever heard. Little did we know yesterday or the day before it was now this is the national anthem of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So we would go from place to place. Go, ooh, ooh, has anyone ever heard how sweet and awful is the play? Yes, Dave, we've, we've heard that song. We, we know that song and we will sing it for your benefit. Yes, uh, so I, I should tease Dave Thebo with his... Uh, uh, excitement to sing, sing songs such as this. Uh, we have considered uh, heretofore the goal of uh, Christ's mandate, Christ's commission, as is recorded in uh, Matthew 28. the threefold goal uh, that, uh, that is recorded there we considered yesterday morning, making disciples baptizing and teaching to obey uh, our Lord and our Savior. We have also considered the scope and the results. Of the Great Commission, as it is recorded in Mark, chapter 16. Now, today, we will look at the doctrinal content of the message of evangelism as we consider the heavenly mandate, God's, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's commission, as it's recorded in Luke, the 24th chapter. So, turn uh, with me, if you will, either in your booklets. If anyone has it already, you can just count out the page. Thank you. Three, three. Page 33. Hey, we're getting near the end here. Or in your Bibles to Luke, chapter 24, verses 44 to the end of the chapter. Again, the he at the beginning of our reading is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Let's pause for prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the uh, comfort and the joy and the peace and the assurance that comes yet afresh to our hearts as we sing these hymns of the church, as we worship you this day as the body of Christ, called out of the darkness into your marvelous light that we might declare, announce, show forth your excellencies. Father, thank you for all that you are and thank you for all that you have done for us, your people. And again, we ask, Lord, humbly that you would impress it upon our hearts and our minds, that this is something that you have done, not that we look inside, look to ourselves and ourselves alone, that we would hold these wonderful, unspeakable blessings and treasure them unto ourselves, but rather that we would look in such a way that our hearts and lives would overflow and those who are thirsty would be able to drink of this same living water. Father, speak to us this morning and teach us. Instruct us in your ways. Help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers. And we thank you because we know that as your spirit works in our hearts, you will and you are transforming us unto the likeness and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us these commissions, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, then let's look at the doctrinal content, although, you know, that's not exclusive. There's been doctrinal content throughout. But you could say that uh, the Lucan commission focuses a little bit more on the content of our message, that which he has accomplished for us, and that with which he sends us to proclaim among the nations. You'll see three points uh, in these verses, although you have something in the background too, which, which I will make reference to. But in verse 46, uh, he says to the apostles that the Christ uh, will suffer. That is, the first point of our message is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 46, the second part, and rise from the dead on the third day. The content of our message is the resurrection also of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 47, the third part, and repentance and forgiveness of sins, will be preached in his name to all nations. That the Christ will suffer, that is, that the Christ will die, uh, the uh, death on the cross, and that the second point, that he will rise from the dead on the third day. And then the third point, the repentance and forgiveness of sins, will be preached in his name to all nations. First of all, let's look at point A, the death of Christ. The death death, death of Christ. The first area of truth uh, is in verse 46, that the Christ will suffer. The death of Christ on the cross is the death of an atonement. It is the death that the Lord Jesus Christ died as a substitute in place of his people. Now, as we go and share this message in today's day, we need to make this point clear. And that's going to require that we kind of think through some of the implications of unbelief in various cultures. To my mind, this is a really good example of how it is that the missionary has to understand through learning the language, the cultural context of those people and their belief systems or their unbelief systems, how they understand things, and then uh, kind of hone in there and and, and key in. And it probably would be different in very Roman Catholic Mexico than it would be in very unbelieving, pagan, smorgasbord, California or the United States, Uh, it matters not. Again, I think I was reminded through uh, brother Tony's testimony uh, two days ago that be be you born in New York City or Los Angeles it's pretty much of the same uh, ilk uh, today throughout the United States, perhaps because of the influence of the mass media television and the like. Anyway, in Mexico, we need to disabuse or, or to redefine or to help people to whom we're taking the message think through what death is all about. I mean, the question there, uh, number one on your outlines, why is it necessary for man to die? The, why does man have to die? What, what's, what is death anyway? Uh, in Mexico, we're going to approach, I'm, I've, I've learned to see this in a different angle. Perhaps you've observed that the Mexican has... Well, at times it seems a morbid fascination with death. There's a fascination and fixation on death itself. It it is riddled, it carries with it all kinds of superstitions and the like. And of course, in the area of religion and uh, theology that comes to to a climax in expression artistically and elsewhere, which just basically uh, rips at our heart. I toured the largest cathedral in the largest city, of Mexico, uh, that city which is considered the cultural heartbeat of the entire nation. I think Mexicans think it's the, cult, the, uh, the, the, the center city of the entire world uh, as, as I listen to them talk. Uh, that is to say El de Efe, Mexico City. They just refer to it as El de Efe and everyone, uh, as a matter of fact, in Mexico, interestingly, and this is just an anecdote, when everyone asks themselves inevitably in my city, where are you from? Because no one's from Tijuana. The first question is always, where are you from? implicit and assumed you're not from Tijuana, but they, they'll say, uh, I'm from Mexico. The first time I heard that, I'm like, well, duh. Yeah, but uh, I, and what they mean by that is I'm from Mexico City. That's the, that term, I'm from Mexico is the exclusive, the heart, the very center, the core of our culture, dating back not only to the conquistador, but the pre-Spanish uh, 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 era, right back to the uh, Indian civilizations of Mesoamerica. Anyway, as I toured the, ta- the uh, cathedral there, in the downtown square, referred to as the Socorro, and perhaps some of you have had the same experience, not only in Mexico, but elsewhere throughout Latin American countries. I was confronted square in the face, just smacked with the images of the dead Jesus Christ. There he is before you, bloodied. And, and, uh, uh, and again, the, cru- the crucifix, Christ fixed on the cross in, in, all the, the, uh, in all of the gory detail. The head bowed. Uh, and, and, and beaten and bloody. No triumphant, victorious, rescuing savior here. And then you look to your right as the people go around almost paying homage uh, and, and you see the Christ entombed, uh, lying there, in, uh, dead, uh, as, uh, in a portrayal of, of Christ entombed. What is very conspicuous by its absence, of course, Is the resurrection. That is why we worship our Lord and God and our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ invisibly. We worship the resurrected Savior. We do not worship according to images or likenesses. Our Lord, we do not seek Him amongst the dead. Our Lord lives, and He ever lives to intercede. You see in the Mexican culture a fascination with death itself. And it really has nothing to do with the nature of that vicarious or substitutionary death that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly suffered in obedience to the will of the one who sent him. So we have to really think about that and hone in on that and address that issue in the Mexican context. But that's not so much what I think uh, Americans would have to address. What I see and perceive in uh, just on the shores, as it were, of America. We're still having access to American radio and the like. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you will agree that in the last 15 or 20 years or so, there has been a change, a shift, a cultural shift in the United States regarding the issue, the subject of death. And Americans talk very glibly, in a very cavalier way today, about death. It seems to me that Americans are working very hard to fool themselves and to convince themselves that death is really no big deal. And perhaps this isn't new, perhaps it's just public now. So we talk about all, uh, we, you hear, hear these almost cliches, well, I think we just need to make peace with death and the fact that we're going to die. We hear of terms like death with dignity. And the one that I've heard most frequently in the secular world through the media recently where, where uh, some notorious figure has died and maybe he's local enough that people who are on the radio would be going to the funeral service. But it's not going to be a funeral. Have you heard this again and again? We are not going to remember him in death. No, we are going to celebrate his life. Have you heard that? We are going to celebrate the life of our passing friend. We won't think about death. We'll think about his life. We'll think about life. And you know what it really is, dear friends? It is yet one more excuse and reason to party hardy, if you ask me. It's just one more reason to lift the beer glass or whatever and, and, and toast him in life and we will just eat and we will drink. Perhaps, if they would stop and think, they would be able to say, wait a second, what's going on here? For tomorrow we shall die. But they don't. They repress and suppress that knowledge and Americans nowadays work very hard to fool themselves into thinking that death is natural Everybody is going to do it. So we just have to make peace with the concept and go on living our lives such as they are. I said that maybe this really is a new phenomenon because I took a book off my uh, shelf uh, written, and I don't know the year, but written uh, quite a while ago. Uh, It's a a three volume set by uh, the author John Brown. I remember having read this uh, quite uh, some time ago and I thought, you know, I should reread that for the purpose of our talk this morning. In answer to the question, Why does man have to die, first of all, before we look at the question, why did Christ have to die? Why does man have to die? Listen to his words and think about them in light of what you've seen and heard and will see and hear as you share your faith to your neighbor, to your loved one, to the person with whom you work or in whatever circumstance. John Brown writes this, Death, in the nature of the case of men generally, is often termed their debt to nature exactly what we hear today. It's, it's just our debt to nature. The thought is not an accurate one. Man, the creature of God, originally owed no such debt to nature. His nature bade him live, not die. It is the debt which, uh, Death is not the debt that man, the creature, owes to nature. It is the debt which man, the sinner, owes to justice. Death is not a natural result of the original constitution of man, but a punishment introduced in consequence of his rebellion and transgression against God's divine law. I'm going to back up and read the sentence that uh, once before, which is kind of a summary. And I actually put two sentences together uh, in summary fashion. Some of you might want to jot it down. Again, I'm sorry that this wasn't quite finished and perfected before your copies of the outlines, because I clearly would have had it in there. But I'll read it again slowly. Death is not the debt that man the creature owes to nature. Death is not the debt that man the creature owes to nature. It is the debt which man the sinner owes to justice John Brown continues death is a monstrous thing and the instinctive feelings of nature in this case as in many others are more to be credited than the plausible speculations of vain philosophy. What he's getting at there is, wait a second, there's just something about that. We, we should be saying, as, as, as all those around us are dying, as, as life seems to march on inexorably to death, we should stop and consider, our soul almost shouts the question, wait a second, something's wrong with this picture. There's something monstrously wrong here. And Owen, and uh, not John Owen, John Brown writes, the, uh, the, we should... uh, We should give a thought to our instinctive feelings in this case, as in many others, more than the plausible speculations of a vain philosophy. It is now, it is, now that man is a sinner, no wonderful thing that he should die. It would indeed be very wonderful were it otherwise, after he who cannot lie has declared in reference to Adam, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt, shalt thou return. This is now the established rule. It is appointed unto men once to die and also by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Again, Pastor uh, Jack Miller in, in one of his books and I believe you have the quote there in your outlines writes these words as we consider uh, this message of the death of Christ uh, from Luke the 24th chapter and consider the question behind the question why does anyone have to die? Why does man have to die? He writes these words. Often grace and the message of the cross mean little to people because they have no understanding of their peril. God is seen as a genial Santa Claus who has no wrath towards sin. And they see themselves as basically good people who pretty much deserve heaven. To To tell them Jesus died for you sounds nice and comforting, but really, why did he go to all the trouble? Luther pointed out that we need to impress upon people the law of God in order to make them ready for the message of Christ's atoning and substitutionary death. Luther wrote this, The law must be laid upon those that are to be justified, I think perhaps writing from his own experience, the law must be laid upon those that are to be justified that they may be locked in the prison thereof until the righteousness of faith should come, that when they are cast down and humbled by the law, they should fly to Christ. The Lord humbles them, but not to their destruction, but to their salvation. For God wounds that he may heal again. He kills that he may again bring to life. First thing that we need to get the people in our respective cultures to see Uh, is, is God's answer to the question, why is it necessary for man to die? Why is it necessary for you to die? Why is it necessary for any of us to die? And then, having established that, why was it necessary for Christ to die? This is written, the Christ will suffer. Why was this necessary? James Denny, in his volume, The Death of Christ, uh, and I believe that you have this also copied in your um, outlines. Very, very interesting quote here. A man is sitting on a pier fishing on a calm, sunny day. Suddenly, another man comes running down the pier, dives into the water, and drowns. Having witnessed this, I explained to the fisherman, this man died for you. The fisherman, however, has great trouble understanding why the man needed to die for him. After all, he was no, in no danger that he could see. He was sitting on a dock on a sunny afternoon, casting his fishing pole, in the water, You see, we need to bring the two together. And we bring those two together when we, when we first show uh, the, the man, man, the sinner, man, the son of Adam, man in his sinful state and condition, uh, why it is that he is in very grave danger. Again, then we can see how it is that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. And again, a couple of chapters later in the work by John Brown um, on the death of Christ. Our Lord was a man, but no ordinary man. One who always did the things that pleased the Father, who delighted to do his will, who found the doing it his meat and drink. One completely free from error, completely free from guilt, completely free from depravity. All whose thoughts and feelings and volitions were in perfect accordance with the mind and the will of God. How did he come to be numbered among the transgressors transgressors so as to die? How was it that death dared to lay his sacrilegious hand on the Holy One. How is it that he who alone deserved eternal life received not the life, which is the reward of obedience, but the death, which is the wages of sin? There can be no doubt that the death of our Lord was a punishment. Men meant it so, though as they meant it, it was unjust. God meant it so, and as he meant it, It was the just expression of holy displeasure against sin. Christ died for sins. He was made a curse. The death of Christ was the manifestation of God's abhorrence and his holy wrath against all iniquity. But who's iniquity? Not that of the Holy One, the perfect sufferer. There was no iniquity in him. Men drew the conclusion, as they witnessed the cross, from the number and the severity and the variety of his suffering, that he must have been some great sinner to be so smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted, though none of them could convict, could convict him of sin. Even the judge who condemned him to die declared that he found no fault in him. The true account of the matter is that long ago, Isaiah the prophet foretold the good news. And what was that good news? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and he bare the sins of many. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then first Peter gives the New Testament uh, fulfillment uh, and the, 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 the full understanding of how it was that the hymn of Isaiah is the Christ. First Peter 3:18. "For Christ died for sins once for all, the just, for the unjust, to bring us, to bring you to God." In this First Peter 2:24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So it is that the Messiah was cut off, but not for himself, but for us, for sinners. Christ was, as he was giving the commission in Luke, the 24th chapter, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, so that they could understand what was written about him in the law of Moses, in the prophets, such as Isaiah, in the Psalms. And first, we need to make sure that we bring the message of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to our hearers. Uh, just uh, leaving my notes here for a bit, we need, we need to uh, get to that point uh, as soon as possible, as it were, in our, in, in our evangelism. Uh, especially as in times where the, we, um, and I'll be speaking about this more tomorrow morning, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself but in times where it seems that, humanly speaking, we are meeting this person, you can tell there's some special occasion here. The person really is interested in, in what it is we're saying. You've had this experience. There's a, there's a special attention that I don't often see. He, she, this happened to me yesterday. I'll tell you a little bit more about it tomorrow. Uh, is saying something or asking something that shows, in this case, a she, that, that she, she really uh, is asking the question and then the question behind the question. We need to get to the, to the content of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and not just leave it in a more superficial uh, 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 appreciation of Christianity and religion, which is what I get all the time, especially in the context of diaconal ministries. Well, that's nice. That's nice. That's really a nice thing that you're doing. And I guess that's true. I mean, it is a nice thing. But that's not the point of what diaconal ministries are all about. The second point on your outline uh, the, the resurrection of Christ. That Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, the resurrection. This brings us to the, se- the second doctrine herein taught and to rise again from the dead. This sets forth the Christian's hope. We spoke about this on Monday night. Namely, Christ's exaltation and his lordship. And really all I want to do this morning is point out how the apostles had this key truth as part of the doctrinal content of their evangelistic message. No one will be saved who has not bowed to the lordship of Jesus Christ? Matthew chapter seven, the twenty-first verse. Now uh, we see that this—the lordship, the announcement of the lordship of Jesus Christ by virtue of his resurrection—is really not new post-resurrection. The lordship of Jesus Christ is uh, throughout Scripture, but especially in the coming of the Messiah, from the beginning to the end of his ministry. Uh, there in your notes, Luke chapter. 2 verse 11, and if you would like to fill in the blank, the angel's proclamation. The angelic proclamation was the announcement of his lordship. Luke 2 verse 11. Today, in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Number two, when the apostles preached, they preached his lordship. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Colossians 2, verse 6.3 there. And the fill in the blank would be when believers came to Christ in the New Testament, they came to him as Lord. So again, just summing up those three, restating those three the angelic proclamation was the announcement of his Lordship. When the apostles preached, they preached his lordship. When believers came to Christ in the New Testament, they came to him as Lord. Colossians 2, verse 6. I believe it's verse 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with uh, gratitude, with thankfulness. The lordship of Christ at times it seems, might be something of a lost doctrine in much of what we hear in the church and from the church today. We hear again and again that you need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. And it's not bad to hear that. That's not wrong. Uh, But I think we need to hear, in addition to that, that he is declared in the message that we take, scripturally, to be Lord. And that element must certainly be included in our message, as well as the fact that I think we need to point out, both in Spanish and in English. This is, by the way, the most common uh, phraseology in the church at large. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Again, let me restate uh, it's not wrong to put it in those words. And I don't think we need to pounce when we hear someone stating in those words. But we need to, at times, also encourage people to understand that there is a lordship issue here And if we put in the terms of you need to accept, just that very terminology could play right into the hands or the the heart of a man or a woman who still has no inclination whatsoever to surrender his life to someone else. Here's a set of propositions. I want you to see if you will consider them according to your understanding, according to your terms, according to your priorities, according to your principles, and yes, the presuppositions behind those principles, I want you to consider all this, and then I want you to see if you wouldn't accept. And the person can come up, I'll accept that. But you see, if it's on those terms, there's been no giving up, there's been no surrender, there's been no bowing the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to whom we would say, take my life and everything that constitutes my life, the way I think. I need to start thinking anew. So it's not a matter of me accepting some propositions and rejecting others and maintaining my autonomous control of myself all the way along. No, it's a matter of me giving up and giving over to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.9 is what we need to hear, perhaps coupled with what we so often hear. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, yes? But also, at the same time, we need to hear that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Of course, you can almost guess that I would have included a quote from Charles Spurgeon at this point, And there you have it recounted in your uh, outlines from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to these strong words if the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares. Now, I'm going to reread those words because as I've been going over this material, I I think that needs to be restated, and that's the if. The if has to be heard before I read on. If the professed convert distinctly and deliberately declares that he knows the Lord's will, but does not mean to attend to it. So that's a very important qualification. Let's not read over that and just hear his conclusion. The conclusion is, you are not to pamper his presumptions, but it is your duty to assure him that he is not saved. Do not suppose that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to the worldlings and telling them that they may be saved at this moment by simply accepting Christ as their savior while they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. If I do so, says Spurgeon, if I do so, I tell them a lie, pervert the gospel, insult Christ, and turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Perhaps a word we don't use in English anymore, but what that means basically is giving over to self-indulgence. Wet your heart, wet to idols and idolatry. Lasciviousness, you want a definition? A Webster definition? Well, no, Webster did it much better than I. It's the lifestyle of Southern California. It is interesting, again Spurgeon, to notice that the apostles preached the lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the Acts of the Apostles. And Spurgeon therein gives cites the two places, Acts 5 and 13. On the other hand, it is amazing to notice that the title Lord is mentioned 92 times, Lord Jesus 13 times, the Lord Jesus Christ 6 times in that same book. The gospel is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. That well-known and wonderful text which teaches us, wherein God's word teaches us not only the wonderful saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in this state of humiliation, but also that great and victorious Lord in this state of exaltation. He has received that name which is above every other name, that name at which every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sooner or later, all will acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. And see the third, repentance and forgiveness of sins. The repentance and forgiveness of sins, verse 47 of our text, will be preached in his name to all nations. We have in this the preaching of repentance. First of all, our Lord's example throughout the Gospels. Repentance was the Lord Jesus Christ's first and last subject. Early in his ministry, he called for repentance. uh, Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you have the Mark in account. It even kind of uh, strikes you uh, sooner in the account by Mark. Uh, Mark writes that uh, when John... The Baptists had been thrown into prison. Jesus went to Galilee and Mark 1.14 says uh, that he preached the gospel saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We were talking, uh, some of us, uh, again, the night before last, uh, before bedtime and mentioning how it was that repentance is sometimes not explicitly mentioned, but implicit throughout, even in the story, the account through the Christ's ministry that is recorded in Mark the 10th chapter of the rich young ruler. And without looking to all of it now, time will not permit, but you'll remember, and it's very touching, it's very dear. Several of us were talking about this, how it is that the scripture recounts that our Lord Jesus Christ looked at him and loved him, this rich young ruler, and says to him, one thing you lack, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So without uh, explicitly mentioning Repent, turn, and believe. But he said to him, nevertheless, Go, give up, sell everything, repent, because your righteousness is based on your own works of the law. And then come and follow me. Believe in me. And then the last word here in Luke 24, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. So we have our Lord's example. We also have the Apostles, Faithful obedience. And I might uh, be a little bit selective here uh, because there are so many examples. But uh, through the preaching of the apostles throughout the book of Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come uh, from the Lord. You remember I was referring to that from the man I met in line at Costco who had that delicious looking double layer, double chocolate cake. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent. Turn to God. Repent and believe that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing might come. Acts 20, verses 20 and 21. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 26, the verses there written. Paul, now on trial. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Now, just a little note in your notes, and an important one. The scriptures teach that the author of repentance, the giver of this marvelous grace, the true author of repentance, is the Lord and the Lord alone. It's God operating by the truth impressed upon the Holy Spirit renewed heart. He sends the Holy Spirit to work in the heart to make it ready for the message of his word. And then God graciously grants repentance. This is what the Bible teaches. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him, Jesus, to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And then chapter 11, verse 18. But when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now, how does he do this? How is it then that, well, I've already made allusion to it. He sends a spirit and the spirit works in the heart and it prepares the heart that it might receive the word. The instrument that he uses is the word of God. The means used is the word of God. And then in parentheses, I have there in your outlines, and many other displays of God's truth, the truth of the Word of God. Biblical counsel, deeds of mercy, love to our enemies. I'm going to leave my notes uh, here uh, just to uh, flesh that out a little bit with regard to biblical counseling. Uh, the uh, model that, that has been a real blessing uh, to me uh, in my own life, uh, first of all, my life as a single Christian guy, and then my life as a husband. Uh, which where, that's the first time you really grow in sanctification, isn't it, when you get married, and then my life as a father, and then you really grow again when you become a dad, uh, has been uh, blessed and instructed and changed radically by uh, the uh, biblical counseling which we, has come, which we have received, which has come to the Presbyterian Church through the ministry of uh, Jay Adams and others, George Scipione. Uh, I have said before, and I might as well say this for the tape and publicly, that there has been no other single thing in my own personal life which has so helped me to grow uh, yeah, uh, then to understand the dynamic of growth and grace, which tells me that I need to put off the old man and the deeds of the flesh. I need to mortify those deeds. I need to habitually to learn the new habit of once having been by the Holy Spirit uh, brought to the point where I identify this as not just a sin, but a sinful pattern. I need to put, that, put off that man and I need to put on the new man in Jesus Christ so that I would then be, as Adam says, you, know, you have to dehabituate and you have to rehabilitate. Uh, I uh, personally and am, am deeply indebted uh, to that ministry uh, for for the way the Lord has used it in my own life. And, and uh, others have told me the same in Mexico, that this has been very helpful as I use that as a, as a teaching tool. It has been helpful to their lives. But I want to give a personal example of how it is. Oh, but anyway, Adams talks about counseling the unbeliever. How is it that you can build counsel the unbeliever? And this comes up a lot. And Adams' point is, I think, you know, how he kind of says things categorically, <laughs> just a little bit. He said, one of the things he says, you can't. Uh, I remember him saying that one lecture, probably in class. You can't counsel... Uh, the unbeliever, biblically counseling unbeliever, believer, which with which, by the way, I would agree. Uh, you have to do pre-counseling. And what he means by that is you have to evangelize the unbeliever. And uh, all I would add to that, uh, dare I, all I would add to that is that this is a wonderful evangelistic tool. And, and we should use it as such. And I'll just give an example from my own life. Although this wasn't really pre-evangelism, it wasn't really counseling an unbeliever. I'm not sure which category this was in. But I just want to show you how the Lord used this not too long ago when the phone rang at 11.30 at night. And I don't know about you all, but 11.30 at night, that's the worst time to wake me up because I've just really gotten into the deep part of the sleep and I can't usually find my shoes and I can't find the light switch and I can't find the phone. But when I finally got there and I think dropped it out of my hand and picked it up and said, hello, uh, the, ma- the, the voice on the other end of the phone line was uh, almost... Uh, Well, it was certainly uh, laden with anxiety uh, and tension and nervousness and fear to some degree. Uh, It was my neighbor, my believing neighbor, my Christian neighbor. Uh, Anna is her name. And she said, uh, David, uh, could you come over quickly? (laughs) And I said, well, I'm I'm not sure, Anna. Uh, What what is it? What what do you need? And she said, there's another neighbor of ours uh, um, who lives on the next street. And she's here in my living room and she's experiencing a panic attack. Uh, yes, the panic attacks uh, have the, the very exact translation and, and such were the very words that came to me across the phone that night. And I, and I was thinking about this, now what do I do? I, I asked because I knew he had been away. I said, Ana, is your husband home? And she said, no, he's still in Nevada. And I said, well, well how, who's all there at the house? Maybe I should have you come to our house, but I didn't know if that would work. Who's all there? And she said, well, she, our neighbor and Luis and Gabriel, our boys, Uh, are all here. I said, okay, sure, just give me a second, and I'll be right over. And as I went over, I found this lady, her name is Lourdes, and she was indeed distraught and and, and nervous and upset, and I I just started to think and pray with my eyes open, Lord, help me to counsel in your word, and and I asked her the simple question, this is why I'm not sure if it was pre-evangelism counseling of the unbeliever, or if I was just bringing God's word to a person uh, in, in in a different state, I'm really not sure to this day, but I asked her the question, Lourdes, are you a Christian? She said, Yes, I am. I said, You're, you're a Christian. Well, what does that mean, Lourdes, that you're a Christian? Well, that means that, that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and that I will go to heaven because I believe in Jesus Christ. Well, Lourdes, and yet what I've just heard in the summary, you're, you're going through this attack of panic and anxiety, which you can't control. You don't know where it comes from, and it just uh, overtakes you. Is that the point? She says, Yes, yeah, that's exactly it. And I asked her, Well, Lourdes, in that case, if you're a Christian, What's, what's the worst thing that could happen to you right now? And she just paused and, and started, I, I, want, I want you to think about this and answer. And, and she gave me some, type, uh, some uh, examples, kind of vague, and kind of open. I said, well, frankly, Lourdes, I could come up with some worse things that could happen to you right now. Worse than that, these examples you've given me. For instance, I, uh, I could take out a gun and shoot you right now. Typical Dave style. Uh, I... I I, I, I could, I mean, physically, I could kill you right now, couldn't I? <laughs> and she was like, uh, well, I'm not saying I'm going to. Uh, good. She, uh, she was relieved then. Her, her, her panic and anxiety was, was, was dropped because I heightened it and dropped it a little bit. But, but that could happen. Or let's say that there's a home robbery, these which we've read about. And someone kicks in the doors and they have masks on their face and they have us in gunpoint. And something in that type of context. You should die right now. But if you die as a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ and by uh, repenting of your sins and believing in him, your life is joined with Jesus Christ and not only are you his, but he is yours. Well, then how could that be a bad thing if you would die today? And if that's the worst possible thing that could happen to you right now, much worse than any of the examples that you gave me, let me ask you a question. What can separate you from the love of Christ? So we went to the text that we, uh, that we just opened our Bibles together and read through the text of the comfort which comes from the knowledge of the fact that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, neither death nor life. But what I want to say to you this morning is that you could just see her countenance change and, 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 and relaxation and, and, um, and uh, rest come not just to her mind but, and her heart, but actually to her body. You could visibly watch Lourdes, Relax. Uh, there, there are, are displays, uh, diaconal ministries, showing deeds of mercy, uh, love for our enemies. You remember the words of, uh, of, um, the author of the Pilgrim's Progress. Man, I got to do more reading in English. Sorry, John Bunyan. Bunyan. Thank you. Who was uh, assaulted uh, one evening on his way back to his house, and we and we read in his, uh, in his diary, a uh, prayer of praise and thanksgiving even though he was robbed. And evidently his life was threatened. And it was these three points. How he, this man learned to give thanks in all circumstances. He, he, he wrote, I thank you, Lord, for the experience I had uh, this evening. And although those young men took all that I had, it wasn't very much. And I thank you also, Lord, that they took my money, yes, but they did not take my life. And thirdly, Lord, I thank you that it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. You see, the Christian can learn to give thanks in all circumstances to love and pray for. We were talking about this other night. How do we suffer? To love and pray for his enemies and in so doing show a hope that is living, that does not disappoint, that is based on the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ and that will make others sit up and take notice and ask the question. Okay, so, now, back to the word repentance, the word itself. Uh, It comes, comes, and many of you know this already, it's the Greek word behind the word, our English word is metanoia. It means to consider again, uh, so we can learn what the uh, word means, the fullness of the word, repentance, partly through an examination of the word itself, but then more thoroughly through a study of how that word is used in scripture. The word means to consider again, so therefore, or to reconsider, to change one's point of view, to change one's mind, to change even the way one thinks about the, uh, this thing or things, to have a different uh, point of reference and to make different judgments. That's what the word in and of itself means, but it has a broader range of meaning as it is used throughout Scripture. Scripture adds to the word repentancement, the idea of a remorse that comes from the new point of view, the change of mind, or, or it both pr- uh, prompts it and then surrounds it as it comes. A sorrow, but not even just a remorse and, and a sorrow and a grief, but actually a revulsion towards the way we thought before. Therefore, having given that as a background, when we read the answer, the question and the answer, from our catechism, you see how it gives us a wonderfully rich definition to the question, what is repentance? What is repentance unto life? The answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and out of an apprehension of the mercy of of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin. Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You'll notice the phrase apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. How is it that in the very definition of repentance there's apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ? Well, when you repent you turn from and at the same time you turn unto. Repentance and faith might as well be one word uh, as we consider repentance and faith. If you say it fast, I guess it sounds like one word as we consider the teaching of the New Testament. It really underscores our confession or our catechism underscores the point that where saving faith is found, there, gospel repentance will be found too. And where repentance is found, there will always, one, one will always find true saving faith. The two are conjoined. They're inseparable. They're two sides of the same coin. So, the Lord told uh, the apostles uh, these three things. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. I, I, Bill, I forget, can you tell me where we are in time? Is, is when we conclude? Uh, Let me just, and I won't have time to look at it then. Let me just, let's just quickly uh, uh, turn our Bibles to Acts, the second chapter, in conclusion. And we'll see how it is that that most victorious first sermon recorded in the book of Acts, the Sermon of Peter, uh, brings to expression these very three points. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 38. Uh, 22. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but I just wanted us to to point out how it is that Peter started and after a preface or a a type remark wherein he answered the accusation, uh, these men are not drunk as you have supposed. He he answers the criticism uh, and and, uh, rather says what it is not and then also includes what it is, what is happening here in accordance with the prophetic word through the prophet Joel. Then he launches into the the substance of his sermon. So, in a sense, he really gets to the beginning of his sermon in verse 22. And notice, after he addresses them, "Men of Israel, uh, listen to this." With that introductory mark, a call to attention. What, are the, what is the very first word of Peter's sermon, the first sermon we have recorded of the of the apostles in the Acts of the Apostles? Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes on from there. So in conclusion, as we share Christ with our neighbors, as we preach Christ to the nations, we must sure that the first word, the middle word, the last word is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, bring the, the conversation as quickly as, as possible to the cross, uh, to the crucifixion, to the death, and as a substitute of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, uh, verse 23, I'm sorry. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He emphasizes also not only the cross of of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also the implications of the resurrection, uh, that Christ was raised, but also that he's exalted to a throne and his lordship. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on. On him, and he shows how this was in accordance of the scriptures. He's using the very pattern, the very model of the content of our evangelism that the Lord entrusted, as it were, through the commission in, in Luke chapter 24 to Peter and the others. So he brings, Peter brings in the cross and the crucifixion. He emphasizes the resurrection, and in point three there, Peter concludes with what is required uh, of man. Verse 38, Peter replied, "Well, well, the Holy Spirit blessed his words." Verse 27, the people heard this. And they were cut to the heart and said, Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And and again, uh, all of this was there in the Lord's instruction uh, to the apostles in Luke chapter 24. Let's, uh, Let's break, if that's okay and then we can take some questions at the beginning of our next session.